John chapter 10. Last week, we looked at the first 21 verses of John 10. This week, we'll pick up in verse 22, and we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 42. We are all given measures of authority in our lives. Authority in a family, perhaps as a father or as a mother or as an older sibling. Authority in church as a deacon or perhaps some other means, some other area that you've been given authority over. Authority in a classroom as a teacher. Authority in government. For every layer of authority that we have been given comes a measure of responsibility regarding those over whom we have been given authority. That makes sense. When we are given authority, with authority comes responsibility. I have authority over my family, my wife and my two daughters. With that authority comes responsibility. It is my wife's duty to submit to me. It is my duty to lead her. I have a responsibility to lead her properly. See, because she is submitting to me, If I don't lead her properly, if I don't take my responsibility seriously, not only will I go astray, but I will lead my wife astray as well. As a pastor, I have authority over this local church. But with that authority comes responsibility. I have a responsibility to lead you and to guide you in the way that the scriptures would have you to go. I have the responsibility to preach the word of God to you. I have the responsibility to be an example to you because I have that authority. In John 10, this evening, we're going to take another look at the authority of Jesus Christ. We've looked at the authority of Jesus Christ earlier in the book, and we're going to take another look at it this evening. We're going to come at it from a bit of a different angle. As we do so, we're going to understand some things about our own authority as we recognize Jesus Christ's authority and how he exercised it in his life. So this evening, let's look at three important lessons from three important principles of Jesus Christ's authority. Three lessons from three principles of Jesus Christ's authority. And the first lesson that we're going to learn is from this first principle. Christ's authority is derived by his divine nature. Christ's authority is derived by his divine nature. We open the scene in John 10.22 in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, which is in the winter. Now, the Feast of Dedication is more familiarly known to us as Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. It was a feast that began on the 25th day of Kislev, that would be the ninth month, and continued for eight days. I mentioned this morning, and I'll mention it again this evening, the feast began in approximately 165 BC as a memorial of the day when the Maccabees rededicated the temple following the abomination of desolation committed by the Assyrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, hundreds of years before this Feast of Dedication, there was another event that took place on the 24th day of the ninth month. That would be the official dedication day of the temple. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, in the second year of the Persian king Darius I, 
Now, Darius took the throne in 522 B.C. This prophecy would therefore take place in 520 B.C. On this day, the 24th day of the ninth month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. It was on this day that according to verse 18, the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. On that day, as well, God condemned Israel for their defilement, but also promised great blessing upon the people. And then in this prophecy, God then prophesied of the day when God's enemies would be destroyed, when God's servant would become a sign that God had chosen Israel, that he would bless them, that he would redeem them. All of this was found in a prophecy to Haggai on the 24th day of the ninth month. Now here Jesus stands in the temple on the 24th day of the ninth month. And it's important that we understand what happened in Haggai chapter 2 on the 24th day of the ninth month. Because Jesus Christ is standing in the temple and notice what the Jews say in verse 24 as they come around. And we'll begin in verse 21, excuse me, 22 for context. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I have a difficult time believing that it was a consequence that the Jews came up and asked this question on the 24th day of the ninth month with what they knew about Haggai chapter 2. See, in Haggai chapter 2, God had said, Look, Israel, you are defiled, but I'm going to send a servant, and he is going to bless you, and he is going to redeem you. And the 24th day of the ninth month would have resounded in the hearts of the people as this day of this prophecy of the Messiah that would come. Remember, that was in 520 B.C. It has been 550 years since that prophecy. And the Jews look at Jesus Christ who's walking in the temple in Solomon's porch on this day and they say, look, if you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, perhaps they were thinking Jesus. The prophecy says that God's servant will come and destroy God's enemies and establish God's people as a sign to the nations. So if you are the Christ, why don't you just show us not a sign, but that sign? Show us the sign that our enemies will be destroyed. Show us the sign. Go sit on in that temple right now and show us that you're Messiah. Show us the sign that Haggai said you were going to show us. It's the, it's the 24th day of the ninth month. Show us the sign that the enemies will be brought to dust and you will redeem your people. What are you waiting for if you're the Messiah? Now this would be a good time to remember the source of the stumbling block that the Jews faced in regard to Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Messiah were prophecies of victory. They were prophecies of restoration. They were prophecies of the kingdom, of righteousness, and of obedience. Now, there were prophecies such as Isaiah 53 that spoke of the suffering of Messiah, that spoke of the pain and the anguish that he would go through. And yet even Isaiah 53 is bookended on both ends by victory. When Jesus came, he came with the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came offering Restoration. He came offering the kingdom. He came offering obedience. He came offering remission of sins. But the problem was, 
the Jews had interpreted everything backwards. See, they expected the presence of Messiah to usher in the kingdom. And then after Messiah ushered in the kingdom, there would be obedience and redemption and remission and salvation. But that's not what the prophecies said. The prophecies of the Old Testament promised that the kingdom would come when the hearts of the people were finally ready to receive their king. Throughout the history of Israel, and we've seen it in the book of Judges, Israel has been a rebellious people. Israel has been a people where God said, go to the right, and they've gone to the left. Israel was a people that, that where God said, sit, and they jumped. God said, jump, and they sat. Israel has been a people that throughout their history, everything that God has told them to do, they found some way to either do it in their own power or to try to show God that they were doing it while still in rebellion to him. They've been a rebellious people since day one. And God said, there's coming a day when you will no longer be rebellious. And when that comes, the kingdom will come as well. Jesus will be the sign. The temple will be restored. The kingdom will come on earth. But the people first had to be in a place where they heard, responded to, and obeyed the word of God. Until that day, the kingdom simply could not be established. And that's why Jesus Christ's message as he came was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, the kingdom is coming. I'm here. I'm here to give you the kingdom, but I need something from you first. I need you to repent. I need you to prepare your hearts for the kingdom. I need you to be ready to accept the kingdom. I need you to accept my message. And they would not. Now, I give this reminder because as we've walked through the book of John, we've spent a great, great deal of time emphasizing the nature of unbelief that the Jews had, their persistence in unbelief. But you know, if we were to place ourselves in their shoes, their reasons for rejecting Messiah were pretty sound based upon their interpretation of the Scriptures. Now the problem was they were misinterpreting the Scriptures. But based upon their interpretation of the Scriptures, which said... The kingdom's coming and then we'll be happy and we'll be joyous and we'll be saved and all of these things. Their reaction made sense. The problem was they were more loyal to their interpretation of the scriptures than they were to the truth of God. And when the truth of God was made supremely evident to them and it resounded in their hearts that look, I have misinterpreted the scriptures. This is Messiah. He has come. When that happened and they saw a man who fulfilled the law and the prophets, they said, I'm more loyal to my misinterpretation of the scripture than I am to God himself. And that's where the problem came. That's where the stumbling block came. And that begs the question, would you and I do the same thing? There were men in Israel that did not, right? There were the disciples who Jesus Christ said, follow me, and they dropped everything and followed him. They knew he was Messiah. There were thousands in Israel that knew he was Messiah, that responded to him. There were many thousands that did not. What would you do? What would I do? Would we be so loyal to our particular interpretation of the Scripture, our brand of Christianity, that if Jesus Christ came teaching something else, if the very Word of God stood before us, 
Would we follow our loyalties to the interpretation or would we follow our loyalties to the truth? It's a good question. One that perhaps we should ponder on this week. Well, they asked him, we recall in verse 24, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Show us this sign. Go sit on the throne. Destroy your enemies. Redeem us from Rome. If you're the Christ, do these things that Haggai chapter 2 said you should do. Jesus answered them with a pretty similar statement, one which he's mentioned before. He tells them that he told them whether or not he was Messiah already. They don't need to doubt. He had told them plainly. Look what he says. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. He says, the problem is not that I haven't told you. The problem is that you haven't accepted the message. The problem is not that I haven't been clear. I haven't been plain. The problem is you don't want to hear it. They haven't believed Therefore, they are not of his sheep. If they had hearts that were willing to believe, they would have believed. But they have exercised their will against God. They have rested in unbelief. And God said, therefore, you have not believed. Therefore, you're not one of my sheep. But to those who had believed, Christ's authority rests in his divine nature. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Verse 30, I and my father are one. See, believers follow Christ because Jesus Christ is the very Word of God incarnate. They follow Jesus Christ because He is God. Because He is the Word of God. He is God made flesh. And Christ, in turn, gives to those who follow Him eternal life, verse 28. But not just eternal life. Verse 28 says He gives to them eternal security as well. Verses 28 through 30 of John chapter 10 are some of the most definitive verses in the Scriptures on eternal security. There are other ones as well, found in Jude and such. But the picture that Jesus Christ gives us in John 10, 28-30 is that of hands. And He says, when you believe on Jesus Christ unto salvation, you are placed in the hand of Jesus Christ. And then He goes on to say, no man can pluck you out of My Father's hand. The idea being that that hand is one and the same with God the Father's hand. And so when we get saved, we are placed into the hand of Christ and in the hand of the Father, and we are in His hands. Now, the King James Bible, if you have the King James Version as we use in this church, you'll notice in verse 28 that you see the word man. And in verse 29, you see the word man, and they are italicized. The word man is not in the original Greek. It is added interpretively. And to be quite honest, I believe that the translators here in supplying the word man actually limited the scope of this promise a bit too much. It could be interpreted that no man shall pluck him out of his hand or no man can pluck uh, us out of our father's hand. But a literal Greek reading of this verse would go as follows. Of verses 28 and 29. 
I am giving eternal life to them and they shall never be destroyed for eternity and anything shall not seize him out of my hand. My father, the one who gave them to me, is greater than all and nothing is able to seize out of the hand of the father. And so this word in the Greek is not actually any man as much as it is anything. It could be a man or it could be anything else. The implication is that nothing can take you out of the hand of God once you're in it. No man can take you out of the hand of God. No sin can take you out of the hand of God. No event can take you out of the hand of God. Not even you can take yourself out of the hand of God. When I was in college, I often counseled young people about their assurance of salvation. These young people often felt as though, uh, though they had believed on Jesus Christ, they could never measure up to God's standard, and so there's no way that they could be saved. They said, there's no way God could save someone like me. I'm too bad. Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again? Well, certainly I do. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Well, certainly I do. Have you ever accepted that truth for yourself? Well, yes, I have. But all the things that I've done. See, they failed to remember, they failed to understand that salvation is not about what we do, but about what Jesus Christ has already done for us. Salvation is not about the things that we do. It's about the thing that has been done for us by Christ. I'm reminded again, of my little girl walking with me in the store now that they're walking. And I look at Alethea or I look at Karis and I say, hold my hand. Now when I tell her to hold my hand, she may or may not hold my hand, but as she lifts that hand up, I hold her hand. See, because my little girl, as she's walking, she's staring and she's looking around at all the big stuff in the store and she wants to go this way. And she will let go her grasp on my hand. We'll be holding hands and she will let go because she wants to go her own way. But you know what? She's not just holding on to me. I'm holding on to her as well. And so when she releases her grip, daddy's grip is still hanging on to that hand. She's not going anywhere. And she can pull and she can tug and somebody else could come and try to pull her away from me but you see, daddy's holding on to her. It's not just that she's holding on to daddy. Jesus Christ says in verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. See, it's not so much that you're holding on to God in salvation. It's that God is holding on to you. It's not so much that you're clinging for all your worth to God and you're just praying that your strength is going to hold out and your muscles aren't going to get tired because then at some point you just have to release and oh, there you go, you've lost God. It's not like that. God is holding on to you. He's holding your hand. He's holding you in His hands. That's the security that we have in Christ the confidence that we have in Christ. So the Jews demand proof, a sign of his authority. Jesus tells them that his authority is inherent because he is God. I and my Father are one. He's declaring himself to be God. Naturally, this didn't go over well with the Jews. 
didn't go over well with these unbelievers. And this anger leads us to our second principle. The first principle, Jesus Christ's authority is derived by his divine nature. Second, this evening, Jesus Christ's authority is testified by Scripture. His authority is testified by Scripture. We see this in verses 31 through 36. The Jews are angry. They are not happy that Jesus Christ said, I and my Father are one. Notice what it says in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Does it almost sound like, oh, here we go again. That's the way it's supposed to sound because how many times have Jews picked up stones to stone him in John? How many times have they conspired to kill him in the book of John? Well, it's not yet his time, so he's not going to die yet. And yet here we go again. He says, I and my father are one. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He says, look, I'll tell it to you as plain as I can. I and my father are one. And they say, ah, blasphemy. Pick up stones, get ready to stone him. And Jesus asked them a question. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those good works do you stone me? He didn't slip away this time. He looked at them as they picked up the stones and he said, I've done quite a few good works now. There's a lot of good things I've done. Here's a man standing next to me with an infirmity for 38 years. He's healed. That was pretty good. Here's a blind man that had been blind since birth. He's healed. He's standing on this side. I've done a lot of good things around here. Are you going to stone me because I healed this man after 38 years of infirmity? Are you going to stone me because I healed this man after a lifetime of blindness? For what good work that I have done in my Father's name are you going to stone me? Their reply in verse 33. The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. See, they say they're not angry because of the works that Jesus did. They can, Jesus Christ can heal and he can feed them all day. But because Jesus Christ equated himself with God. Notice his response. It's a very curious response. Verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken... Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. In verse 34, Jesus Christ quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, which says this, I have said ye are gods, and all of your children, excuse me, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, within the context of Psalm 82, God is speaking to the leaders of Israel. He's specifically speaking to the princes and to the priests. And he calls them in Psalm 82, verse 6, gods. Literally the word Elohim, the word gods and children of the Most High. Now, within its context, Jehovah is not giving them the status as a deity. He's not telling them that they are on par with him. But rather what he is doing is he is telling them that they are sanctified. They are set apart as earthly representatives of God to the people of Israel because of their positions of authority. What this means is that even though these were just men, these princes and these priests in Israel... God had given unto them divine authority as religious and government leaders 
to represent God in their areas of delegation. And that he gave them divine authority, the implication is that he also gave them the responsibility that comes with representing God. So in a manner of speaking, they are gods. They have divine authority delegated to them. Now, let me bring this close to home. Government officials, pastors, and fathers have been given divine authority delegated to them as well. This is the, the means, this is the implication of what God was telling the people in Psalm 82 verse 6. In the same way that he told them, ye are gods, you have divine delegated responsibility by God. So too, I have been given a divine delegated responsibility by God for this church. So too, fathers have been given a divine delegated responsibility to lead their, lead their wives and raise up their children unto God. Every father in this room has been given divine authority to lead his family, to make decisions for his family, and to spiritually represent his family. And by extension, every father, myself as a pastor, every government official that represents God as government is a God-ordained institution will answer directly to God for the decisions he makes and how he leads those that are under his care. This is the sense in which Jehovah calls the princes and the prophets, excuse me, the princes and the priests in Israel, gods. And so Jesus Christ says, it is written, is it not written in your law, verse 34, I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus asks, since religious leaders and government officials are recognized as having divine authority within their delegated realms, and since Scripture cannot be broken, Scripture is not in error, you will not defy, nor can you defy the truths of Scripture, how dare you say the Son of God is a blasphemer for claiming authority from God? Scripture itself testifies of Jesus Christ's authority as God the Son. God himself, as Jesus was raised up from baptism, declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God would say to the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. God has declared Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. Should He not have authority? Christ's authority is derived from His divine nature. Christ's authority is revealed by scriptures. Third and finally, the final principle is found in verses 37 to 42. Christ's authority is revealed by his works. His authority is revealed by his works. Jesus Christ concludes this debate with the Jews by revealing that his works are consistent both with the testimony of his nature and the testimony of of scriptures. Now this is very, very important. Don't miss this. It's important to understand that what Jesus did was consistent with who he claimed to be. Jesus could claim to be God all day, but if he didn't act in a manner that was consistent with the scriptures regarding the character and nature of God, then all of his claims were baseless. This is an important lesson for you and I. We can claim Christianity until we are blue in the face. 
We can shout from the rooftops that we're Christians. We can tell people that we go to church. We can tell people that we're believers. We can call God our Lord. But Jesus, as we'll see in John 14, 15, said this, If ye love me, keep my commandments. James would put it this way in James 2.18. Yea, if a man say thou hast faith and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Let's look at verse 37 of John chapter 10. Jesus speaking. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Do you want the world to know that you're a child of God? Act like a child of God. Jesus Christ said, if you won't believe my testimony that I am God, that I am the Son of God, well then at least believe the works See, because the works that Jesus Christ did were wholly consistent with the Word of God, with the character of God, and with the Scriptures. On a side note, this is why we need to be careful as we worship and as we live. See, you'll hear people today that say, Jesus Christ was a God of tolerance. He was a God of love. And so I don't think we should condemn sin. I don't think we should say that sin is sin because Jesus Christ came in love. He came to preach the good news. Yes, but Jesus Christ just said here He did the works of His Father. He came in a manner that was wholly consistent with His Father. And as Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw the vision of God the Father, what did he see? He saw the seraphims, each one having six wings, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And Isaiah looked upon this vision of the thrice holy God and he said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We cannot separate Jesus Christ from the vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. We cannot separate the God who came in love from the God who is thrice holy. They are the same God. And we cannot say that Jesus Christ did not expect holiness. And so when Jesus Christ says, I do the works of my Father, recognize that He is coming in the character of His Father to do the works of His Father. Unless we should ever be confused, we can learn a lot about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. Back to our application. If you want the world to know that you are a child of God, just like Jesus Christ showed the world that He was the Son of God, if you want the world to know that you're a Christian, well, they will when you act like a child of God. Do you want your neighbor to know what it means to be a Christian? Act like a Christian around them and they will know. Don't laugh at their dirty jokes. Don't keep silent so as not to offend them when they say something sinful. Now, I'm not saying that we need to bombard people with religion, but don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide it. 
If you want them to know what it is to be a Christian, be a Christian around them. When you invite your neighbor over for a meal and you have them over to your house, don't pretend like you don't thank God for the food before you eat. Thank God for the food before you eat. Show them that you're thankful to God and and you give God the glory for the food that's on your table. Show them that you give God the glory for the warm house in which you live. Don't hide what you are. How are they going to know if you don't live it? Jesus told them that His works are the works of His Father. So He says in verse 38, But if I do, though you believe not Me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in Me, and I in Him. Now, the response of the Jews to this statement was not that of belief. We should have come to expect this by now. Again, they sought to stone Jesus. That's twice in this one chapter. They sought to stone Jesus. This time Jesus escapes out of their hand. How? We don't know. Jesus then went over, it says, to the place where John first baptized on the east side of Jordan. So he went over the Jordan from Jerusalem to the east side of Jordan to where John first baptized. And it says there he stayed. And notice verse 41. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. As we close our sermon this evening, there are many things that we have contemplated today from the word of God. Perhaps you're listening under the sound of my voice and have had great struggles over the assurance of your salvation. You struggle because of your flesh. I still sin. How can I be saved? You struggle because of the particular sins, perhaps. How could God have saved me and I still do this particular sin? Or maybe it's because you've never considered the teaching of eternal security and you've just always assumed that if you let God go, He's going to let you go. That if you don't stay faithful to God, He's not going to stay faithful to you. Jesus said in this passage that no man can pluck you, that nothing can pluck you out of His hand, that nothing can pluck you out of His Father's hand. Read it and believe it. Perhaps you're a leader in this room. You've been placed in a position where you have been given divine accountability as a father, as a church leader, in some government office. Do you recognize that your position has given you divinely appointed authority and that with that authority, according to the word of God, is also given unto you divinely appointed responsibility? How are you doing at fulfilling those responsibilities before God? Final question for you this evening. How are your works? Do you have a tendency to minimize your Christian character when you're in the presence of non-Christian people? Are you a strong Christian among those who will understand your testimony, but minimize your testimony among those who it might inconvenience or who might be offended by it? We see in John chapter 10 that Jesus Christ's works, His testimony was an imperative 
aspect of his declaration of his identity and his authority. If the works of our Lord were that important to prove his character, how much more important should our works be to prove our character? Now, that doesn't mean if we don't do the works of our Father, we're not a Christian. We talked about that in this passage. But should we not do the works of our Father because we're a Christian? Much to think about this evening. And let's allow ourselves to do that as we close.